This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to another episode of Tau Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a person that I've already been in touch with during the pandemic. We'll tell you about it. Professor Eran Yashiv. Nice to be here. Uh, the Berglas School of Economics at Tel Aviv University. Such a pleasure to have you here with us. Good morning and pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm so happy to finally meet you in person because we, we had some uh, dealings uh, in the past um, about the future of work during the pandemic. You published uh, together with uh, one of your colleagues an article in the New York Times which uh, made a lot of noise about uh, a system that you proposed to allow organizations to go back to work. We'll talk about that. But before we jump into the subject matter, which is your expertise, macroeconomics, and so on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, about you, as we do with, with all of our guests. Tell us about your background a little bit. Sure. Actually, I came to economics almost by chance because I went to study, I wanted to study mainly psychology. I did that at the Hebrew University, and I picked economics as a sort of auxiliary subject. I thought it would be more practical Uh, so to speak. Uh, but during my undergrad studies, I became more and more interested in economics, and I saw less of a future for myself as a psychologist. And actually, I came into touch with someone who influenced me a lot, Michael Bruno, who was to become later both the big stabilizer of Israeli inflation and the Governor of, of the Bank Central of Israel. Bank, yes. By the way, when you say psychology, you mean you did not want to become a practitioner of psychology. Right. But in economics, there's a great deal of psychological influence. That's, that's right. Uh, uh, that's influence. right. But I was thinking of becoming a clinical psychologist, and I found that economics interests me more. And especially the work with Bruno, I was first his RA, then I was his, worked with him at the Bank of Israel. Subsequently, we were at MIT together uh, as sort of colleagues. So his work combined both theory, academic work, and policy implications, and I enjoyed that very much. And in fact, he had a tremendously successful inflation stabilization policy, which was just like a dream thing for an economist to see how Theoretical ideas work in the real world, bringing down Israeli inflation from something like 400 percent a year to less than 20 percent. And yeah, we'll talk we about that. We'll yeah. talk about that uh, really dark chapter in the economic history of the State of Israel, the 1980s, uh, Menachem Begin's uh, government that took us into Lebanon and basically bankrupt the economy and uh, and destroyed the middle classes, if I may add. Uh, which is something that we're still dealing until this very day, dealing with this um, problem. Um, but uh, tell us a bit about your upbringing. Where were you born? And I know you spent a big chunk of your academic career in England. But where were you born, and what can you tell us about your early years? Yeah, I was born in Israel and grew up here till the age of five-something. Then we went, the family, uh, my father... We went to two places. We were in France for four and a half years in Paris, 
and then in South Africa, in Johannesburg, for four and a half years, almost consecutively, because my father was working for El Al. And that gave me, I would say, a more cosmopolitan worldview, also some languages. I know some French from the Paris period and a lot of English from the South African period. So uh, what, what ages were you in, in Johannesburg? From around 10 to 15, which was, by the way, the height of apartheid in South Africa. So that taught me a lot as a teenager, as a child and teenager, about social issues and discrimination issues that, in fact, come up in my work that I can tell you about later on. It was a, a very difficult period in this sense uh, to see, for example, blacks, black people having different benches, separate benches in parks and on streets and dri driving on different buses and other transportation. Now, were you, when you, were you, I'm assuming you were educated within the Jewish community. Exactly. And so what, what, did you notice any difference between the way members of the Jewish community related to the political system and, and, and other South Africans? Yes and no. The no is that the Jews lived under the same apartheid ruled and maintained them. And uh, I don't think their personal treatment of black people were very different from the rest of the whites. The yes comes from the fact that within liberal parties in South Africa, that there were a minority, like opposition liberal parties, uh, Jews were very prominent and active. But uh, overall, I'm not sure it's a great pride for uh, Jew world Jewry, the apartheid experience in South Africa. And are you still in, <clears throat> in touch with some friends or, or colleagues in South Africa? Are you still... Well, just sort of email correspondence with few. But basically, this community, big Jewish community, dispersed after apartheid, or even before apartheid was dismantled, certainly after that. And so it's a minority, and they were now, now all over the world, including in Israel, in Ranana, for example, Australia, the U.S., England, and so on. Yeah, I happen to know a bit about the community because I have a large family in South Africa. Uh, and I do know that since the early 1990s until today, at least 60, if not more, percent of uh, South African Jews actually left South Africa, P perhaps more than 60%. Yeah, I would guess more than 60. Yeah, yeah. but uh, that's a fascinating chapter. So, so then you ended up in, in England for your higher learning no, I, the England part came later, uh, and it goes on till now. I, my study, all my studies were at the Hebrew University, but I've often visited and spent sabbaticals, including long sabbaticals, like three-year sabbaticals, at mostly at the LSE, the London School of Economics, and I'm still nowadays dividing my time between Israel and the London School of Economics. So uh, in terms of research, in terms of colleagues, in terms of friendships, I've got a lot invested there. So I, w I have to ask you a question, which I'm curious about, Brexit. Here's my theory. Um, and of course, I didn't invent it. I'm just, you know, reflecting to you things I've, I've read elsewhere. Um, information overload. The human brain was never designed to handle so many stimulations 
simultaneously. As a result, we humans crave simple solutions to highly complex problems. That gives rise to populist ideas. And we see this all over the world, from the Mexico border wall that Trump introduced as a, as a simple idea to a highly complex problem, all the way to what's happening here in Israel, pointing to the Israeli judicial system as the only reason for all the problems that we have in Israel is a very simple way to communicate reality, highly complex reality to people. My argument is that Brexit is yet another example of a seemingly simple solution that is being proposed by political leadership to a highly complex problem. And my question to you as an economist, as a, especially as a person whose specialty is in macroeconomics, did it work? Well, I think your diagnosis is very right. And I must say that all mainstream economists, in fact, almost all economists in the UK and observers of the UK economy were firmly opposed against Brexit, warned of its economic dangers. And nowadays, actually now in 2023, and starting last year, we finally see the warnings come true, regrettably, obviously, because economists thought it's a very bad idea from the beginning. I think economists also realized, and I think you alluded to that, that there were a lot of lies and misinformation involved in convincing people for Brexit, like economic arguments say, we'll pay the EU less, we'll devote more to the NHS, a very important institution, the National Health Service in the UK. All of these were based on simply disinformation at the in the good case, mostly lies, outright lies that were printed on buses of the, the Brexit bus that they toured Britain with. And the disadvantages are it hurt trade, it hurt immigration, which contributes to the British economy. And now the UK economy is paying the price. Actually, it's an interesting case where the economy is actually paying a price which is clear, becoming clear to people for populist policies. I'm not sure that every instance in the world of populism is translated into economic damages that quickly. So actually Brexit in this sense is a good uh, case, a good teaching lesson uh, not to trust populists and their promises. They promised a b better economy they got a much worse. And by the way, now the British people, if they were to vote today, would probably vote 60-40 against Brexit. It's clear by all the polls. Yeah, which, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit too late, I guess, mm -hmm. to, uh, to reverse. Now, uh, since we started with the, the issue of uh, um, England's relations with uh, the European Union, let's talk a little bit about the European Union as an economic phenomenon. Um, what do you think needs to happen in order for the European Union as a collective um, to really upgrade and improve its economic performance. Um, and when I talk about economic performance, of course, I look in comparison to the United States, which is the number one producer of knowledge, of conceptual products, that will continue to really maintain the edge because of that, the economic edge, because of the fact that the American economy is based on creativity, on human creativity, which you can't say about the Chinese economy, for example, which is based on other assets, but certainly not 
the ability to produce new knowledge. Uh, what needs to happen in Europe for the European Union? Well, it's not an easy question because I think economists struggle to explain why certain nations or certain regions of the world exhibit a particular e economic performance that's probably rooted in culture, in religion, in and in Europe, certainly very long traditions. It's, well, the EU doesn't exist for centuries, but Europe exists for centuries and uh, millennia. And it, it's hard to explain everything. And certainly you see that there was less energy, less creative energy that you referred to, uh, even relative to China, not to speak about the US. And that's, I'm not sure anyone has a clear answer how you change that. It certainly has to do with institutions, what economists call institutions, which means, if you like, the, the way society operates and the way the economy operates. And the Europeans have built up useful and good institutions. And therefore, overall, their performance is not bad. And it has improved over the years. Certainly, it's, a, it's an accomplishment to absorb the Eastern European countries and go on. The, Europe has also withstood big crises, the Balkans War, the, the Euro crisis in the early 2010s. So there is also what to admire about the Europeans and their ability now to stick together after centuries of wars and conflicts which drained the European economy. And don't forget that the US is built on the demise of certain European concepts and European processes. And and I yeah, absolutely. I like the way you um you 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 know you created that historical link between Europe and the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh and, uh, and they were Europeans that came to America in mid-19th century that predicted the success of America um, based on what they learned from the failures of, yeah. of European culture, absolutely. Um, American exceptionalism uh, is the term that they used to describe the American system as early as mid-19th century. And uh, so we spoke a little bit about um, um, the first connection that we had. It was uh, during the height of the pandemic, and uh, you published an article in the New York Times in which you referred to a system that you proposed that will allow organizations to go back to work in a gradual and modular fashion, which I would, would like you to, to describe. Uh, but the more important question that I'd like to ask you, and really if you could share your vision with us, is about really the future of work. Everybody's talking about this new hybrid that was created as a result of the pandemic. People spend two, three days working from home. The question is, is it working? Uh, are we in a transitional period? Are, are we on our way to a different system? What's going to happen to the future of work? Now, actually, a lot is happening at the same time. And I would say it's dangerous to predict firmly. That is, whoever has clear solutions, like you mentioned before for Brexit, uh, is probably a populist rather than a serious researcher. I can point to the, a number of important developments and we'll need to see how they play out. One is 
in fact, with the pandemic, more teleworking, working remotely and so on. Some research shows that it actually improved productivity. Other shows pitfalls like people say that gathering physically, even in coffee breaks at work, is very creative and very productive, and you miss that uh, with working remotely. Uh, so it's not clear, for example, if it's more productive or less productive, or maybe the answer is depending on the industry, the occupation, and so on. But certainly in advanced industries like finance, like obviously high-tech, uh, etc., you've got much more remote work that we didn't have just till in early 2020. It's very recent. So this, we'll still need to see how this plays out. The second thing is uh, AI that everybody's talking about nowadays. That's a very big question mark. Because on the one hand, there are estimates uh, floating around about improved productivity. That's very likely. But it's also likely that this will drive certain occupations out, including, by the way, software engineers, code programmers. Maybe AI will write the code and not people. So even in the high-tech industry, there's a question mark on certain occupations going into the future. This, on the one hand, seems very rapid. We only heard about ChatGPT uh, a year ago or something. But everybody's now concerned with that and using that and developing that and so on. So it's early to tell, but there are worrying signs that it could hurt employment, that it could hurt people's working. Now, there is a claim that I subscribe to that in the past, and probably now as well, when you've got these advances, you get new jobs created, new occupations created, new kind of work that didn't exist before. And I think you're referring to the rise of gig economy, of people putting their skills up for sale and people can buy them directly. Yeah, that's part of the phenomenon. But le let me give you a concrete example of research by someone who's a very leading research in this issue and who visited us at the burglar school earlier this year, David Otter from MIT. He's pr probably the most prominent economist dealing with these issues. So he, with colleagues, had a very hard, uh, hard to implement, to execute and meticulous research on documenting new jobs and new occupations in the US. And he and his graduate students found dozens, if not hundreds, of new occupations that didn't exist before, not just gig jobs. And they replaced all jobs that don't exist on, anymore or that hardly exist. And this just shows you in practical terms, if you read his research, that there are lots of new, new work out there, lots of new work out there that uh, we still need to to understand that it exists and that some things have disappeared. Right. So this combination that you're describing, at least the possibility, you said that it's not for sure, you, you, and, and rightly so, you don't want to predict, to attempt to predict even. Uh, but it seems that there's a possibility that two things will happen simultaneously, which will really present a real challenge to humanity. The first is AI, and 
the possibility that it will dramatically change the job market. But the second is the rise in life expectancy. I just had grandchildren and uh, three. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. In six weeks, I had three mm. grandkids. And, uh, and so I did some reading about life expectancy, and it turns out, um, you know, if all will go well, my grandkids will grow to be 90 or 95, easy. And so people will live much longer in the future. AI will be very present in their lives. And the big question is, will that affect the traditional social contract? The social contract that says, you will be a law-abiding citizen, pay your taxes. We, the state or the government, we will provide you with adequate security, safety, education, and health. Uh, will that be sustainable? Well, again, this is highly uncertain. I think before that stage will come, that better health for older people, nicer aging of people, we've got right now a transition to a period where the, the share of the old people in the Western world as a share of population is rising. And what we call the dependency ratio is getting worse. That is, the number of people not working and needing uh, resources relative to the young who are working becomes worse in the sense that the young need to support more old people who are still not very healthy and not productive anymore. So I would guess just out of a ballpark figure for 20, the next 20, 30 years, we'll be more concerned with that issue and how to care and support and fund this growing older part of the population. And later on will come this stage that you are describing, probably old and healthy people who may even be productive, working for longer years with the increased life expectancy and less of a dependency problem. There will probably be already a leisure problem. What do you do with the amount of time given that is bigger than we used to have? And Well, I would like to believe that we will go back to a new period of renaissance, that the main purpose of life will be to create, to acquire knowledge and to create new knowledge. And... And I think that's a pretty optimistic view of the future. Uh, and add to that, of course, quantum computing and all the things that we will be able to do in the future. Um, I think the future could be bright, really. Yeah, I was going to say that you're optimistic. <laughs> there are other, very optimistic. There are other visions. Let, let me point to one of them. Uh, the big issue of climate change and other cosmic problems that do not seem to go away, in fact, do not seem to even be solved to a partial extent, although there are many ideas around and many debates and many discussions, but little progress has been made. What happens if this gets worse and then you, you'll find big population movements to better places on the planet with the ensuing conflicts, with perhaps ensuing wars on territory that is habitable versus territory that is 
inhabitable. So humanity could be facing huge challenges in this respect if it doesn't soon deal with the huge climate change problems that are just building up. And according to what I see, are the problems are arriving faster than we thought. And I think all, each of us personally feel, both, by the way, both in the UK and Israel, that the weather seems to be changing. We've got hotter periods everywhere. We've got all kinds of highly volatile weather patterns everywhere. And that's what these climate scientists have been saying for years, and it's coming, it's yeah. coming to us right now. We, we, we get more and more evidence that somehow we disrupted, we human disrupted the, the universe. There's no question about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Israel from a macro uh, level. Um, you know, it's interesting that we, who specialize in identifying risks all the time, especially security-related risks, uh, we don't really pay attention to the risk of climate change. It's not part of the decision-making process in Israel on the highest levels. And I'm curious as to your opinion, why, why do you think is that? Uh, what's the story? I think it's a combination of two things. First of all, thinking in Israel is very short-term, especially policy thinking. Let me give you an example that we you suffered from this this morning. You were stuck in traffic for two hours. Everyone is stuck in traffic nowadays. We economists have been saying for over a decade, probably two decades, that Israel's transport infrastructure is very lousy, is lagging, say, after Europe. There are big, big gaps, growing gaps, and that we should invest in that. That's public investment, government investment that's needed in roads, in trains, in buses, etc. This hasn't been done. It's extremely lagging, despite many economists' warning. And it's a reflection of the short-term thinking, because policymakers were told that. I was one of the people, but there were others, including people from this campus, telling people in office, in the relevant offices, whether it's the Ministry of Treasury, the Ministry of Transportation, the Prime Minister's office, uh, 10 and 20 years ago. But they didn't pay attention. All the thinking is the next uh, week or two weeks. So if you talk about climate change, it looks like uh, abstract, completely abstract to Israeli policymakers. So that's one big problem for Israel and has always been that. The second thing is that Israel seems to be always pressed in some more urgent problem. And nowadays we are in the midst of extremely huge and urgent problems on the political, uh, I would say even on the society level of relations within society. And that pushes aside even fundamental questions like climate change. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, we can sum it up by saying in Israel, the urgent always overrides the important. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and I think that, that that's yeah, what you described. Yeah. Now, you you spoke about your experience with the, the late Michel Bruno and uh, curbing uh, hyperinflation back in the mid-1980s. And, um, and so what can we learn from really the meltdown 
of Israeli economy. I remember this as if it happened yesterday because my, my older siblings just got married and bought apartments uh, in the early 1980s, and they're, they, they saw their mortgages mushrooming like almost every day. People's salary was worthless by the end of the month with 400% inflation. And so what were the real macro reasons for that meltdown? Uh, and, I, and, I, and I take it for, I mean, I'm assuming it had a lot to do with the incompetence of um, Menachem Begin governments and his decision to appoint Simcha Ehrlich and following Simcha Ehrlich, you know, Yoram Maridor and other people that were really apparently highly incompetent uh, in, in, a, in a radical fashion, in a radical fashion, to take the economy which was stable and drive it into the ground, you really need to be extremely incompetent. So I'm, this is, I take it for granted. But on a macro level, what happened then, and what can we learn from it today? It's one of those cases, which is rare actually, that what textbook economics or macroeconomics tells you is exactly what happened in Israel. That is, what shouldn't have been done, and at the end, what Michael Bruno and Associates did to repair that. What the Be you're very right, the Begin governments, what they did is implement very quickly, too quickly, all sorts of ideas that they thought they took from Milton Friedman and others about liberalizing the Israeli economy. But they did that in a very hurried and non-regulated way which brought all kinds of balance of payments movements. We won't go into that right here, but that made uh, Israel flush, if you like, with money, and money is the root cause of inflation. So in, in this sense, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. You have more money, prices rise, and the higher the rate of money creation, the higher the rate of inflation. With that, at some point, they also began running big government deficits. That's another kind of irresponsibility uh, on the part of economic policymakers. And that fed into money creation because back then, the Bank of Israel was actually printing money to finance the government deficit. So it's certainly textbook mistakes of economic policy, and you're very right about pointing at the responsible people. The solution in this sense, and that's what Michael Bruno did, is just do the reverse. Stop the money printing, stop the deficit and the money printing associated with that. And you almost, basically you brought down inflation overnight from running from 400% a year with the vision going to 1,000% a year, it within days or weeks, it went down to 20% a year just by doing what I've just said. Now, is there a basis for comparison to the enormous injection of money into economies during the pandemic, which possibly resulted in higher levels of inflation today? Yes, there is a certain similarity, although there are many other differences. For example, the pandemic had supply chain problems, which created the initial burst of inflation. Then the accommodative fiscal and monetary policy helped to sustain that, and now we've got a big inflation problem. But that's somewhat different from what uh, Bruno uh, faced back then. 
Bruno faced, uh, and we all with him, faced another issue, though, which may be relevant now. And you asked uh, about my beginnings. I was a MA student at the Hebrew University and helped Michael work with Stanley Fisher on an academic paper about inflation. And that paper characterized a problem which was the thing I want to explain about back then, but which could also be true now. And that is that say you're doing the right thing, you're cutting the deficit, you're printing money less and so on. But still what's important is what the public thinks inflation will be. And they showed in a model that you can have multiple, what we call multiple equilibria based on multiple expectations. For example, it could be that with the same policy, the public will expect 5% inflation a year, but with the very same policy, it will also expect, it may expect 30 or 50% a year. Strange, but it's possible. Mass psychology. Yeah. So in this sense, how, how do you get to the lower inflation rather than the higher inflation? You can't tell the public what to think exactly and uh, what to expect. You're saying mass psychology. It's, economists are usually not experienced at, at, at influencing the masses. So Bruno was grappling with a problem. What kind of policy can you do to anchor expectations? And he found the solution in two things. First, in doing for a limited number of months a fixed exchange rate, the shekel, in fact, it was the lira first, and they changed, they did a currency change reform. They introduced the new Israeli shekel. In Iga, fact, there Iga were two, two was stages. Igalovitz was the Minister of Finance then. Uh, and they fixed, with the stabilization plan of July 85, they fixed the exchange rate of the new currency. That didn't last very long, but it was important to anchor expectations. And they imposed for a few months price and wage controls. And therefore they called the, the policy then, back then in 85, unorthodox policy, because people could, cap capitalist economies couldn't quite think of price and wage controls in the mid 80s. It's something that we used to know after the Second World War, but not in the mid 80s. But that served to anchor expectations. It succeeded. And in fact, you can, in the Stanley Fisher, Michael Brunner terms, you got to the low inflation equilibrium in Israel, which was their intention. It relates to what's going on now, because central banks now all over the world, most prominently the Fed, are very concerned with inflationary expectations and with anchoring the inflationary expectations. And I've got a colleague in, at the LSE, Ricardo Rice, who is a, perhaps the leading monetary economist nowadays. Everyone's consulting with him, including Jay Powell, the governor of the Fed, and Christine Lagarde, the governor of the ECB. And he's written extensively about the inflation anchor and about the possibility of losing the inflation anchor. So this is echoes the, the, uh, the Bruno Fischer ideas. And it stresses how important it is to keep expectations anchored. And I think 
if Jay Powell is concerned about anything now, it's about bringing expectations down and anchoring them firmly after they almost took off in 2022. And we wow. won't go into that too, too this is, deeply. This is fascinating. And, you know, I could sit here for hours um, and discuss those things with you. Unfortunately, we ran out of time. In fact, we are way uh, out of time. <laughs> out of time. But uh, but what I would like to do, with your permission, is first of all refer our viewers and our listeners to your wonderful website, um, com, which uh, is a beautiful website where you have um, information about your work, and urge them to Google you up. Yes, and search you. your name online and to continue to listen to your really clear explanations of highly complex problems. I wish all economists in the world spoke as as, as fluently and as articulately as you as you on, you. on those highly kind. complex issues. And so uh, we'd like to um, invite you again in the future to discuss other issues. And thank you for taking the time to really educate us on this. Thank you for inviting me. And to our listeners and viewers, until our next episode, goodbye from Tel Aviv. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.